Um, it is the letter of Jude. Jude, in this day and age, is associated more with the Beatles than it is with the Bible. But um, who is this Jude of, uh, of whom we are going to be studying this next few uh, weeks? Well, firstly, he describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. It's a very deliberate and shielded um, reference to his identity here. Firstly, in in a sense, everyone knew who he was. He was very well known. So there was no doubt over who he was. But it's incredible how he words it. Notice that he is the brother of James. We've just studied the book of James. Those of you who were there from the beginning will remember that James was the brother, genetically the half-brother, of Jesus Christ. And Jude refers to himself as the brother of James. In the same way that James couldn't really bring himself fully to say he was a brother of Jesus, it's the same is true here with Jude. His relationship to Jesus Christ, above all else, is as a servant. It is, or perhaps more accurately, slave. That he is one who is bound to Christ is obedient to Christ. Christ is his Lord and Master. And that relationship trumps the fact that he is the brother of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting when we look, um, you don't need to turn there, I'm just going to read to you quickly from Matthew 13 and verse uh, 55. Um, or I'll read from verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Now, this is interesting, because for for several reasons. Firstly, we're told here, he's in his hometown, he's preaching, and he's like, no, no, we know this guy. This is weird that this guy is teaching like this, and we know who he is, it's Mary's son. And it is the brother of these guys, and these names are read out. And firstly, he is the brother of James, we know about that. Secondly, as a brother called Joseph, which is not unusual. The father's name was Joseph, and so um, that's something that you Americans love doing in particular as well, I believe. Um, and then uh, there is Simon, and finally there is listed here Judas. The name Jude is in the Greek Judas which is simply a Hellenized or Greek form of the Hebrew word Judah, with these fam- this family being descended from the tribe of Judah on both sides. It wouldn't be unusual for one to be named after um, the son of Jacob. And so the, their, 
he was named Judah in, in, in Hebrew and in Greek that was Judas. So why do we call him Jude? Well, because, I think it's fairly obvious, there was a certain another Judas who perhaps the church didn't want him to be associated with. And really that's the only reason we know of him as Jude. If it wasn't for the connotations of the betrayer Judas, he would just be called Judas. That is his name. And I think it's kind of amusing how here in his letter, it's the letter of Jude, Judah's servant, but nobody bothered to rewrite Matthew 13, and he's called Judas there. There's not the consistency, but that is the same one. The other thing to note from that Matthew 13 reference is that when you have the children of Mary listed like that, the brothers of Jesus, there's a fairly safe presumption that it's decreasing in age as we go along. In the way that, you know, if, if you've got lots of children, you say, oh, what are your children's names? You just kind of instinctively just say, you know, the oldest, and then you work your way down. And if that's the case, and most scholars think it is, then um, Jude, as we will call him for convenience sake from here on, Jude was, was much younger. Now, Mary would have been pregnant with Jesus as a young teenager. And then we have James later on, then we have Joseph, then we have Simon, and then we have Judas. So he would have been significantly younger than Jesus. Some of you here I know may have siblings who are significantly older. And when you grow up with older siblings, the relationship is somewhat different. Must have been a bizarre thing for him as a young man to be growing up. Maybe, you know, we, we can only hazard a guess, but perhaps going into his teenage years as his older brother is out ministering and starting his public ministry, perhaps something along those lines. And uh, that must have been an amazing thing. It must have impacted him greatly. But nonetheless, we know from John 7 that he was an unbeliever during the life of Christ. So even though this was his half-brother, even though he had this connection with him, he was as bemused as everybody else as to why this was going on. And perhaps I should turn and, and read you a couple of passages in this regard. But in John 7, verses 3 through 5, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. And yet, that changed. Because when we read in the book of Acts, chapter 1 and verse 14, um, All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. What happened between John 7 and Acts 1? That would be the resurrection. It seems that with Jesus' family, there was just this, this astonishing disbelief. I don't know, I don't know about you, I, I would like to think that if I was raised in a home with somebody who was sinless, that it might have stuck out. 
But God didn't open their eyes at that time. And they couldn't understand. But the resurrection seems to have been the thing that turned everything around for that family. It was at that point that they understood what he'd been saying and their eyes were open. Um, There's one other passage that is interesting with regards to the background of Jude, and that is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, um, Paul is um, talking um, about other things, and he says in passing in chapter 9 and verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? That's Peter. Isn't that interesting? Not only is Peter married and takes his wife with him, but it seems as if the brothers of Jesus were all A, doing work for the sake of the gospel, and B, traveling with their wives. And so whereas Paul... Um, seems to have been certainly at the point when he was in ministry to be without a wife and argued that it was kind of better that way because, you know, he could devote himself fully to God. But these others were, were those who had wives who supported them in ministry. They were believing wives. And um, he would travel with his wife as he went about teaching the gospel. And those of us with godly wives know and appreciate how much they help us in our ministry. And we all are ministers. So um, that is another thing that we know about him. The last little thing that just as a little anecdote we know from church history is not only did he have a wife, but they ended up having children and they were grandchildren. And under the emperor uh, Domitian, um, he was concerned about a potential revolt and he gathered some of the family of Jesus and these uh, grandsons of uh, Jude uh, were called amongst others before the mission in the, uh, with his concerns that they might stage some sort of revolt against him being from the family of Jesus at which point they showed him their hands and how callous they were and they were hard-working farmers And they said that the only kingdom that they were building was the one to come, not the one now on this earth. And he realized they were no threat, and he let them go. But all of that aside, that is who Jude is. Younger brother of Jesus. He is a servant slave of Jesus Christ. Some refer to him as an apostle. It's interesting, in that 1 Corinthians 9 passage, he was contrasted with the apostles. Um, he does that himself in verse 17 of his letter here. So I'm not quite sure on that, but um, he would have seen the resurrected Lord. So maybe we can uh, allow for him to be an apostle, if only perhaps small a rather than capital A. Now, as we come into the book, there are a few issues um, that we have in the book of Jude. This one is the main one that comes up. So let's just deal with it and get out of the way now. Jude, a lot of people struggle with it because he quotes from apocryphal books. And people are like, oh, so Jude's referencing the assumption of Moses. Does that mean that that's a a book we should read? Jude quotes from the book of Enoch. Should that have been in the Bible, maybe? Because Jude seemed to like it. Guys, if that were the case, why are we not having people saying that we should 
you know, read Greek philosophers and poets because that's what Paul quoted in Titus 1 with regards to Crete and in Acts 17 with regards to Athens. Quoting someone doesn't mean you agree with everything they say. It means you agree with that one point. My goodness, if I quoted from some pastor and you took it as as written that I agree with everything that they'd said, I'd have to stop quoting everybody immediately overnight. There's nobody I agree with completely, and that includes myself. Sometimes I go back over my old sermons. Did I really say that? Man. So, no, we're always learning and moving on. And the only thing we can completely trust, of course, is the word of God. And so the fact that uh, Jude, for his purposes, make reference to books that they would have known and been familiar with doesn't give credence to the entirety of those books, simply the point that he's making at that time. And I'm not really sure why it's a big deal to some people, but clearly it is. A couple of other things to keep an eye out for. Jude is very fond of triads, little triplets, things one, two, three. And we'll see, we'll see a few of those um, I think we see three of those today already, actually. Um, so you'll get a feel for that this morning. Um, and also, you'll see a lot of common ground with Second Peter. Second Peter, um, it depends how you count these things, but some, some have counted up to 13 references, um, quotes, allusions, nudges, echoes, as we officially call them, uh, to Second Peter. These books are very, very similar. Now, why is that the case? Some people have struggled with that. And I think that the answer is this. Second Peter was written to the same group of people that First Peter was written to, which we know from First Peter was Jewish believers. And Jewish believers outside of the land, James is writing to them in Jerusalem, Peter was writing to them outside the land, dispersed, and what have you. And he wrote to them in First Peter, and he said to them, you're going to suffer, but you've got to stand firm. Then in Second Peter, he writes, and he clearly says to the same group of people, he references his previous letter to them, and he says, you, you stood firm through trials, but now you've got to stand firm in the midst of false teaching. And even in our midst, we saw how there would be people who would stand firm in trials and then fall when it comes to doctrine. There are those who can stand firm in doctrine and then fall in the midst of suffering. We have to constantly be on our guard in our response to those two threats. Now Peter wrote at Second Peter, and he seemed to be very, very aware that he was coming to the end of his life. He spoke about him himself kind of uh, being taken from them, and he wanted them to be reminded of the things that they knew, because he wanted them to be able to continue faithfully after his departure. Now we come to Jude, and he is heavily referencing Second Peter, which spoke, and let me read this to you from Second Peter, it's just a few pages earlier, so it's quite easy. He said, but false prophets, chapter 2 and verse 1 of Second Peter, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies Heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. 
There will be, future tense, false teachers who will come secretly, bring destructive heresies, deny the master, and they will bring upon themselves destruction. In Jude, we're going to see that there are people who have crept in unnoticed who deny the Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. In in other words, Peter is saying something is going to happen and Jude's saying they're here. It seems more appropriate to me that Peter would write that letter, but I suspect that Peter has now gone to be with the Lord. And so Jude is stepping up and he's saying, you remember what our brother Peter said to you? It's here. So I'm going to keep referencing you back to that letter because you need to now stand firm on the issues that he raised. You need to do the things he told you to do because the time is now. So we may well flick back repeatedly to Second Peter as we go through this letter. So let's dig into the text a little bit more then. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. That's who he is. We now know who he, who he is. And these are the ones to whom he's writing. Those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Here is the first of the um, 14 triplets that we see in the book. Count the threes as they go. Called one, beloved in God the Father, two, kept for Jesus Christ. Who is it that calls us and draws us to God? That would be the Holy Spirit. We are beloved in God. He is the one who chose us. And we are kept for Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son. And I think that in that first triplet, we have the reasoning behind the use of triplets in this letter is that each one is a reference to the Trinitarian God. Why is that the case? Because there's going to be a denial of Christ and the deity of Christ by many of these false teachers. And that's something that we'll address as we come to. And so each of these triplets, I believe, is designed to be a reminder of the Trinitarian belief. Now some will argue, well, didn't it take centuries for people to iron out what the the Bible taught about the Trinity? Well, in, in the sense of all the precise details and how to exactly word it in a way that everybody was happy with following debates, then yes, but the idea that there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that they were that they were distinct in person, but one in God was something that was clear, I think, from the very beginning. The articulation of that may have taken time, but certainly that is something that in a, um, in a, uh, an early form is understood and is seen here. And here's your second triplet, didn't have to wait too long. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And so, as we look at verses two and three, it is a good reminder to us that we have been called, 
We have been called. There is a parallel there with the disciples who were called. We have a purpose. We have a ministry. I emphasize that to you constantly. Why are you coming to church today? Is it to receive? I certainly hope not. I hope that you're coming here to church to minister as well. You are a disciple. You are a minister. If you are a believer, you have a ministry. And your purpose in being here should be more to give than to receive. And you say, why, you know? I don't know how I give in the sense of ministry. I don't even necessarily know what my giftings are and how I can minister. At the very least, every Sunday morning, when you turn up at half past 10, because you know the service starts at 10.45, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, um, you could just sit down and just bow your head and say a prayer and just say, Lord, just help me. Help me today to not just receive from you and your word, not just to have people minister to me, but help me minister to somebody else here. Help me to be used by you to make a difference in the life of one other person here at least. May I be practically a minister. There's always something we should be doing. We are beloved in God the Father. The love of God is seen in him choosing us. And we are kept for Jesus Christ. That's an interesting turn of phrase, that we are kept for him. Some versions will say by him, but I think that there's a good argument to be made that we're kept for him. And again, it points to that ministry, that we exist for him. Does he keep us? Absolutely he does. He will hold me fast as we sing. Yes, he does keep us. And perhaps there is a a double entendre that is intended here. But certainly we are kept for him. That us standing firm in the faith brings glory to Jesus, means that we minister for Jesus, and the enemy is constantly trying to distract us, to take us off, off, uh, off target. He can try and do that by bringing suffering into our lives and us not responding correctly to that suffering, but he can also do it through false teaching. We must stand firm. And the mercy, peace, and love that is multiplied, I think, parallels the previous uh, triplet. There is mercy in us being called. The love is referenced, beloved, in God the Father. And if we are kept, then we are kept in a place of peace. So perhaps there's a parallel there. What there certainly is a parallel with is in verse 3. When he tells them that they are beloved in verse, uh, end of verse 1, and now in verse 3, he refers to them as such. It is clear, therefore, that from that and elsewhere in the verse, that he is writing here to believers. Beloved. We saw that in James, didn't we, a lot? Beloved brothers. Do you remember we were brothers and sisters, James said, at the beginning of each section? So here he starts the book with a very similar structure. I think James wrote first. He'd have been familiar with that. He's using a similar structural marker. But we also notice that James went from brothers and sisters to beloved brothers and sisters whenever he hit a nasty little bump in the road, so to speak. And there needs to be a reminder as Jude begins this difficult letter of his great love for them. 
Look at the context in which he wrote. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. When I was first immersed in expository teaching, and many of you will share this experience with me, it was like being born again again. There I was, I'd been a Christian for perhaps about seven years, and I'd kind of gone to church, and I loved the Lord, and I listened to sermons, and I tried to do what I could, and I was really sincere in my faith. The churches I went to weren't particularly great, let's just leave it at that. And someone introduced me to expository teaching. Someone doing what we do here, going through the Bible verse by verse, looking at everything in its context, explaining the verses as you go through, and applying them to our lives. Man, it was revolutionary to my life. And, and for me personally, because of the background that I had in church up until that point, it was like, it was like, ex- not just a light bulb went on, but an explosion happened in my head because I was realizing that so much of what I'd been taught was not just shallow and insufficient, but in many cases it was completely wrong. Now, Explosions happen in a, in, a, in a moment. Poof! Shock and awe. For me, <clears throat> it was very much in slow motion. I was introduced to expository preaching. And I started to get into it. And I was like, oh man, this is good. Let me do some more. Let me do some more. Let me do some more. And I was studying the Gospels. I was going through the book of Romans. And I was, I was loving it. And after about a year of expository teaching having gradually gotten frustrated with the fact that I was getting teaching outside of church and the teaching I was getting in church wasn't quite so good, there suddenly came this this crisis of conscience where the stuff that I was studying in scripture and the stuff that I was being taught at church just went boom. There was a whole bunch of weird stuff going on in the world at that time and there was lots of bad doctrine and weird manifestations and stuff going on and And it forced me to confront, and for me personally, as an aside, the issue was the sufficiency of Scripture. If the Bible teaches that it is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness, which it clearly does, then if there's things going on in my church that aren't in the Bible, do I need them? Because if the Bible's sufficient, and it doesn't mention this stuff, then clearly I don't need this stuff. And it led me to this crisis of conscience. And about another year after that, I came to the point where I left the church I was in, and I was like, be gone, good riddance. I am walking away from this false doctrine. So it was a two-year journey for me, beginning to study the scripture. It took a halfway point was the crisis of conscience. And then I was down the other side, and another year I was like, man, I can't believe I used to listen to that heretical nonsense. And off I went to find a Bible teaching church. Two years. Now, of course, like the immature bulldog that I was, everybody else had to be told what I now knew and understand it and agree with it, and they had approximately two minutes. 
And God graciously gave me a long period of time to come to the realization of my errors. And I am desperately try these days to not be the immature young man I was back then and to give those who come here, who've maybe got a few funny ideas from wherever they've been previously, give them the sort of grace that God gave me to work through those things at my own pace. It doesn't mean they mustn't be addressed. And when we talk, teach through certain books, we are forced to address them. But what it means is that I've now come to a point in my walk, in my maturing of my faith, whereby I'm not the bulldog I used to be, you know? It would be, I would, it would be like, you know, somebody would mention something on one of my key topics, my key topics being the ones I used to be wrong about, but now I understand. And it was like somebody would mention one of those key words or those key topics and I would be like an obedient dog responding to a dog whistle. You know, I'm there, you know. Let me just tell you everything I know in the next half an hour non-stop. Please don't interrupt. Here I go. You know, I don't want to be that person anymore. And in fact, over the years, I've come to the point where really I don't want to have to address this stuff at all. I really don't. I just want to preach the word, let God work with you at your own pace, and, 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 and hope and trust that he will be faithful to you as he was to me through the ministry of the word. But, sometimes you just got to stand up. Sometimes you can't just brush things aside, you can't things let, let things go. And so I, I find in this stage of my life that I'm in complete agreement with Jude here. I would much rather talk to you about the salvation that we have in Christ. I would much rather talk to you about all the great things God has done for us and our standing in him. I would much rather preach to you about freedom from sin. I would much rather preach to you about those kind of fundamental doctrines and for us to get excited about those things together. And that's exactly what Jude wanted to do. But then he says, although that's what I wanted to do, I found it necessary. Other versions will say that he was constrained. He was constrained. He had to do it. And he had to do what? He had to write appealing or exhorting pleading begging saying come on this isn't just like oh I'm going to change my topic because it might be more interesting I, I feel absolutely convicted constrained and burdened to beg with you can you see the type of language that's going on here this is not something that is an option Peter had warned them that these guys were going to come in, that these people were going to come into the church, that people were going to come in and lead people astray. And now they're here and they've arrived, and he was writing them another letter about their salvation, a letter which, if they understood, would surely have been sufficient for them to say, this is what's true, this is what these guys are teaching, that doesn't add up. But such was the urgency... Because they'd come in now. 
that he said, I have just got to tell you up front, that is wrong. And, and, and it's such an important model for us as Christians in our ministries. And again, we're all ministers. I love to let people just get into the Bible, to let God work with them and the Holy Spirit to minister through the teaching of the word at their own pace. But sometimes people will say stuff to me. People will come up and something will come out about what they believe. And it's just, you've just got to correct. You've got to correct. Do it with the, the preface, beloved. That's always helpful. But you've got to correct. If you are in this church and people come in and they're new and you are more mature in the faith and you're more well grounded and you know what we as a church believe and teach and someone comes in teaching something completely different, then just come in and correct. That's part of your ministry. Maybe that's the ministry that he has for you today. Maybe there's a conversation and you just need to say, actually, no, we don't believe that. And here's why. Because there comes a point where we just have to say, no. You know, it was one doctrine in particular, it doesn't really matter for the sake of argument what it is, but it was one of the ones that I'd sort of come away from in my epiphany as I discovered the biblical teaching. And I was pastoring a few years later in a one of the new converts of the church, he was a brand new convert, and he was kind of quite excited, he wanted to go and share the gospel, and he met some guy who was been preaching in the streets, and he kind of brought him to church to come along, and I was there after church, and I heard this guy start to, to, to talk about this false doctrine to this new convert that we had. You know, we don't, didn't get, it wasn't a big church, and we didn't get a lot of converts, and you know, suffice to say, we wanted to protect our precious, you know? And this guy started come this this guy come in and he just started talking this false doctrine. And I mean, I literally I don't think I just stopped mid-sentence, I think I stopped mid-word from my conversation, and I was like, boom! I suddenly discovered fast twitch fibers I never knew I had as I traveled the 10 meters or whatever it was to that conversation. And I literally put my arm, I said, hold on a second, I just heard you saying this, and we don't believe that, and we don't teach that here. And this is why, and this is what the Bible says. Because sometimes you've just got to take a stand. Because false doctrine is pervasive, and it is destructive. And so that's really what we're going to be dealing with a lot in the book of Jude. So, he is, he is bound, I think is a good way of saying it, to, to appeal to people, to contend for the faith. One of the things that we have to do is we have to fight for our faith. We have to fight for our faith. We cannot allow it to be misrepresented, destroyed. And we must contend, fight for the faith. Every single one of us. Now what that means is, is that when you are new to the faith, when you're a younger Christian, or when you're, you're a younger Christian in a sense of maturity, even if you've been a Christian for many years, that at, at, at the very bare bones, you've got to understand the heart of our faith. You have to understand the gospel. You have to understand the, the, the basics of our faith. Because if you don't understand it, how are you going to fight for it? How are you going to recognize when people misrepresent it? 
And how, if you know something is wrong, are you going to say to others, this is wrong and this is why this is wrong, if you don't know that yourself? So this is, this is something that is, is, there is an onus, a burden upon us to be those who contend for the faith. And therefore, we need to know our faith. We need to understand our faith. We have got to grow in our faith. You've, you are all disciples of Jesus. You have got to learn and to grow. I know it doesn't happen here in our circles so much, but there is a huge number of people out there in the church today who will say things like, well, I don't want to worry about theology, I just love Jesus. just want to love Jesus. Don't give me all that theology, I just want to love Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. If you don't want to do theology, you won't know his commands. So if you don't want to do theology, then you don't love Jesus, period. We've got to grow in our understanding of scripture so that we can be those who contend for the faith. The faith, definite article. It is this particular faith. Um, perhaps there's a reference here to, to Second Peter 1, where Peter says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue, with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, affliction, affection rather, I said affliction, it's on my mind. Um, and brotherly affection with love. There is what Peter references that we build on faith. And it is that same faith that Jude is saying that we must now fight and contend for. The last thing in verse 3 that we need to know, and this is fascinating, is that our faith was delivered once for all the saints. Now let's unpack that for a minute. Our faith was delivered, it was given to us. Nothing revolutionary there, right? How many times was our faith delivered? Once. And to whom was it delivered on that occasion? To all the saints. So when was this one time that the faith was delivered? This is no trick question here, this is fairly simple. It was delivered... Through the gospel, through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the ministry through the apostles. Through that first beginning of the church, the ministry of the apostles, the giving of the gospel, the sharing of the gospel, there it is, there's the gospel, and it has been delivered. And it's been delivered to all the saints. That means that the gospel, which is our gospel, was delivered to us 2,000 years ago. We just, it just kind of hung around for 2,000 years waiting for us to come along to receive that delivery. But nonetheless, there was a delivery that happened one time in history, and that gave the gospel that is then there for every other saint thereafter. Well, that kind of sucks if you're a Mormon then, huh? It's interesting. When you talk to the Mormons, you'll say to them, well, actually, there's a verse in the Bible that talks about the fact that God gave the gospel and it never has to be given again and there needs to be no further revelation. It doesn't need to be added to or changed or anything like that. And they say, oh yes, we know that verse in Revelations, do not add to the word and blah, blah, blah. And then they have their, their kind of pre-prepared response to that. And he said, ah, no, no, no. I'm talking about Jude. The gospel, the faith, was delivered once for all saints. 
Didn't need Joseph Smith to come along with version 2.0. Didn't need doctrines and covenants and pearl of great price and all their other heretical literature that they interpret the Bible in light of. And so this is an encouragement to us that we know that the message that was delivered in New Testament times was once and for all. The scripture is not to be added to. There's no later revelation that this is it. And that delivery is coming through Jude. Now verse 4, which is where we'll end today, verse 4 is telling us the reason why he had this change of plan. This is why he had this change of plan. He had this change of plan because what Peter had prophesied was now coming to pass. For certain people, it's interesting, in, in 2 Peter 2.1 it talks about these people as well. There arose among the people that were false teachers among you. It is these certain people that I believe he is referencing. He is referencing them. He says, the certain people have crept in unnoticed. They've crept in unnoticed. Privately, some versions say. Peter refers to them coming in secretly. I despair sometimes with those who call themselves Christians who will listen to false doctrine and false teachers and bad teachers and, and just not spot it and just not know it. And it's frustrating say, oh, you know, I've been listening to this guy and that guy, and oh man, those sermons, they're, they're so great and powerful. And I'm, I'm that party pooper who will always come along and say, actually, maybe you shouldn't really be listening to them, you know. And we'll talk a lot about them as time goes by through this book. But the reason, of course, that this happens is no one announces themselves and says, hi. Yeah, I've come to teach you. Um, I'm the guy that doesn't believe in the Bible. I'm the false prophet. Um, just wondering if you want to listen to me for a bit. No, no one's going to say that, right? You know, no one, no, no product is going to be advertised on the basis of, hey, buy our product. We're not quite as good as our competitors. And it breaks easily, but we really like you to buy our product. Right? No, no one does that, you know? No, nobody, nobody buys a product, you know, because it's, it's, it's a bad product. So, you know, they want to distract you from the fact. They say, look how cheap our product is. Which, if you're clued up, you kind of say, okay, so your product's not as good then. And, you know, and sometimes they'll just throw out random words like, our product's natural, or they'll put smiling faces of nice, attractive people while they try and sell it to you. Anything to distract you from how bad their product is. No one's going to say, here's a lousy product, please buy it. And so it is that these people come in secretly, privately, unnoticed. If somebody comes to this church and wants to teach bad doctrine, they're not going to come to me and say, hey, pastor, God's brought me to your church. I'm a complete lunatic, and I would just like to, to spout nonsense to your church. How about that? In fact, I say that would never happen. It has happened uh, a couple of times. I've kept the recording on the, on the voicemail just to remind myself occasionally that there are people like that out there. But it does happen. But they are few and far between. What more commonly happens is this. 
that people come to church, they sit at the back, they get involved, they talk to a few people, they work their way into the church, and after a few months we all say they're one of us and they're nice and we like them and they're a nice people. And then they start to just let it slip out, let it slip out, let it slip out. And they don't just announce to large groups of people because that draws attention. They talk to one person, they talk to another. And they bring doctrines that we as a church don't believe in and agree with and don't believe the Bible teaches. And they'll try and teach those doctrines to people privately. That's not okay. We as a church have a statement of faith, we have a set of beliefs, and if you're not sure what we do and don't believe, then just come and talk. And, you know, Tim and I can clarify those things for you. And the reality is, is you don't have to agree with us at all, and you can most welcome to come to our church. Everybody's welcome, as long as they're not going to cause any problems. There has to be a degree of respect that that's what we believe here. That's what we're basing our church on. And therefore, you don't go and bring different doctrines in. And I don't say false doctrines, I say different doctrines. Because newsflash, nobody thinks their doctrine is false. Do you know how many perfect theologians we have here? All of us. Because you've got, you're only going to believe what you believe to be true, right? If you, if you don't believe it to be true, you don't believe it. And, and so there needs to be this place where we, where we have to, if you come to a church, respect this is what the church believes and teaches. But that never happens. And so we have to be on our guard because people slip in and they try and bring their doctrines with them. And so we have to be aware of that. So they crept in unnoticed and they were long ago designated for this condemnation. Now this is an intriguing phrase. Let me say from the off. I don't think that this is a way of saying that that God... um, that God chose them and said, I'm going to destroy you. I don't, I don't really subscribe to a kind of double predestination as some do. I think what happened here is simply this. That there, that there is a condemnation that long ago God prepared for those who would be his enemies. And these people are about to walk into that well, long ago prepared condemnation. Was the other thing that's fascinating here is that the word this were designated for this condemnation. Now, normally when you see the word this, you're like, you kind of reference back and say, well, what condemnation is that? But there's nothing previous here with regards to condemnation. So this is what we would look at as being a this that refers to what is to come afterwards. And in fact, for a large portion of this letter, he is going to speak of the condemnation that is reserved for false teachers. There's a warning for us all. James 3 verse 1, don't be quick to become a teacher. Because there is a condemnation that awaits those who teach falsely. And that is going to be expounded upon in this letter. So... There are these people, they've crept in secretly, they are going to receive the condemnation of which Jude will speak, of which God prepared long ago. Who are these people? Well, there is a triplet here as we look at them. There are three things about them. Firstly, there is their ultimate condemnation as we've referenced. Secondly, they are ungodly people who pervert 
the grace of God into sensuality. Now, throughout this book, we are going to have problems in interpretation and application. Always the case with false teacher passages in the Bible. And here's why. How specific do people have to... How, how specific are they being about these people? And how precise do false teachers have to fit this model for us to apply this to them? Because it's very clear that these false teachers are unsaved. They're going to receive condemnation. And I think that we need to be careful of two things. Firstly, I think we need to be careful for toning down what is being said here. I think there's, they're very, Jude is very specific about these particular teachers and what they're like and what comes to them as a result of their teaching. And so we need to be specific like he is. And we mustn't shy away from the specificity of the text. But on the other hand, we don't want to disregard any false teachers who don't fit this precisely. Okay? There are going to be principles and generalities which these false teachers um, have that apply to other people, whereas other aspects of these teachers don't apply to those people. So when they do something that's wrong, it doesn't matter if this is only one of ten things, that one thing is still wrong, and we need to avoid teachers that do those things as well. So that's how we're going to approach it as we go through. And so when he talks about them and says that they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality, this is specifically true of them in a very severe way, but we need to watch for this. For people who allow God's grace, his forgiving of our sin, as an excuse for us to get away with sin. Paul addresses that in Romans 6. We dealt with that last Sunday when we were talking about freedom from sin. But it is this idea of cheap grace. Oh, well, Jesus is going to forgive that, so it doesn't really matter. It matters a lot. Because that's the person who immediately needs to ask themselves, have I really understood the gospel at all? So it matters a lot. But these false teachers are those who use the grace of God as an excuse. They pervert it to allow their own sensuality. Licentiousness, the older versions would say. Now, first thing that we think of when we hear those kind of words is, well, does that mean sexual sin? Absolutely it does. And we see sexual sin in false teachers routinely. Yes, I know there are those who are good teachers who also have fallen into this sin. But it is far more common with bad teachers. Because they don't really preach and teach and understand the gospel. And therefore they are more prone to succumb to these things. They are seeking out for themselves. And therefore as such they are always going to be taking what they can get in that whole realm. But I think it goes beyond sexual sin. When we see those preachers who exploit the poor, who glorify money, who glorify greed, who have their private jets and, you know, and it's just use the ministry as a way to profit 
I mean, the Bible has so much to say about those kind of people. We might pop into Ezekiel briefly when we get a bit further on in this book. But suffice to say, I think that that comes under the banner of sensuality as well. People use the gospel as a way to satisfy their own passions and desires in every way, shape and form. Guys, we just finished the book of James and we saw again and again underlying the book of James that here we are, we have desires, we have passions, we have wants and the very definition of of godly wisdom, of Christian maturity, of single-minded devotion is to put aside our desires and to be sold out for Christ. These teachers are doing the exact opposite. They are using the gospel, they are using the ministry as an opportunity to fulfill all of their desires. And in its extreme forms, that is obvious and it's disgusting and we would loathe it. But it can be so subtle. Are we happy that people have come to church because they're going to receive from God, minister to others and be ministered to? Or does it make us feel better? Little things. Just keeping an eye on our hearts. Making sure that we are in this for God and not for ourselves. You've just got to be prepared to deny yourself and take up your cross. Whoever you are, whatever God calls you to, whatever your gifting is, we all as Christians have got to be prepared to deny ourselves and take up our cross. These are people who are pretending to be ministers of the cross, and yet they will not only not take their cross up, they won't deny themselves either. And they even go so far as to use the ministry as a way of not denying themselves and getting all that their heart desires. We have to be prepared to let go of everything. And if we understand the faith that way, which I hope we do following our studies in James, then these people should stick out to us as being unfaithful. And thirdly and finally, and here the language is very, very similar to Second Peter again. They deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, if any of you still use the old King James, here's a good reason why you, you shouldn't so much, or if you've got the new King James, it says here in the, the King James and the new King James, God and Lord, rather the Master and Lord. Um, that's a reading that would be nice to have, uh, because it would be a clear declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ, but nonetheless, we have that already in Second Peter, and it may be in trying to harmonize those um, that some manuscripts say God and Lord. But it seems that the original reading, that we have good evidence to suggest that it's actually Master and Lord, but do not for a second think that in any way that means that it's denying the deity of Jesus Christ. What does the word Lord mean? And I've said this so many times, and I'll keep saying it because we've got to learn this. But too many of us, when we hear the word Lord in the New Testament, we think that that means master. Well, it doesn't. The word master means master. In the Old Testament, God was referred to as Adonai, Lord or master. And he also had a name. His name was Yahweh. Some people refer to it as Jehovah. 
we think the pronunciation was better, Yahweh. And when they came to translate the Hebrew into Greek, a translation, a process of translating known as the Septuagint, they decided to not take the name of God in vain, not to misrepresent God's name. They, they, they decided to translate the name of God with the Greek word kurios, which means Lord. So then you have a problem. When you read through a Greek Bible, every time that you have the Hebrew Adonai, Lord and Master, you have the Greek word for Lord. And every time you have the name of God, you have the Greek word for Lord. You've got two different words, meaning completely different things. One saying that God is Master, one saying his name, his character, his attributes, who he is. And they have the same word being used for both. So in our English Bibles, we get around that by we still have Lord in both places, but when we translate the, the word Adonai, it's just Lord written normally, when we translate the name of God, Yahweh, we have Lord in capital letters. You may have noticed that in your Old Testaments. So the Lord is used for both, but we distinguish which ones are saying he's Lord and Master by writing it normally, and which is the name of God, Yahweh, Jehovah, by using capital letters. But what do you do in the New Testament? Whenever Jesus is referred to as Lord, you have to ask yourself, is it calling him Adonai, Lord and Master, or is it calling him Yahweh, God? And multiple times throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, Jesus is clearly called Lord in the context of him being Yahweh repeatedly and I think that this is one of those clear passages and I think it's clear because of this so often in the Old Testament God was called Yahweh Adonai Lord Lord when you have that in your English Bibles it says Lord God and it puts the God in capital letters that's Adonai and Yahweh combined And I think that's what Jude is doing here. And there's other evidence later on, we'll come to that next week, that will show how much he's embracing the deity of Jesus Christ. So what Jude is saying is that they're denying that Jesus is in charge and they're denying that Jesus is God. And it is not surprising that often false teachers go full on in this regard. Sometimes it's a denial of his deity without saying it outrightly. You see that in the prosperity gospel teachers on a regular basis, where they will say things that will deny his deity, though they will say, no, no, we still hold to it. And sometimes people just come flat out and deny the Trinity. T.D. Jakes being one of many examples. And we need to beware of such things. When people challenge the deity of Jesus Christ, they have stepped firmly away from the historic and orthodox biblical Christian faith. This is why we refer to the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons as cults. They will not refer to themselves as that. They will say, oh, we're just Christians like you. No, you're not. And I always get myself in trouble online Because they do this, oh, we're so nice, we're so lovely, we're just Christians like you. Oh yes, your church and our church, and oh yeah, church, church, church. 
and they come across a certain, and of course I come in like the big bad wolf and say, no you're not, you don't believe that, you're lying, you're misrepresenting, don't give me all that nice guy stuff. Because they know that they're not like us. Because if you go to their church, <coughs> sorry, let me redo that, to their church, then they will be very quick to tell you, no, we're not like those others, you have to come to us to be saved. We're not the same as them. But out in the public sphere, oh yeah, we're just Christians, you know, because they're trying to create a degree of acceptability. They don't want to be known as a cult, because then people say, oh no, cults don't want them, you're the weirdos. So they try and associate themselves with the church more broadly, even though they don't believe it. And it's deceitful and despicable that they would do that. And so I always call them out on it. When you leave the deity of Christ behind, you've left the deity of Christ. And you've left Christ. If I say to somebody, you know, uh, do, do you know my, my wife Jenny? And they say, oh yeah, I met Jenny. I know Jenny. She, she's, um, she's, that, um, she's that kind of elderly, she's 70 years old, she's a beast. That, that's Jenny. I'm like, no, no, no. That person may have the same name as my wife, but that is not my wife. That's a different Jenny. Jesus saves. But only the right Jesus saves. Many of you have Jesuses who are doing your gardening on a weekly basis. We live in Southern California. Jesus is not an unusual name. None of them will save you. Though they may save your lawn if it's in a bad condition. I remember learning this. I was reading an encyclopedia when I was a kid, and it said, Jesus got eaten by lions. And I said, that's crazy, that can't be true. And then they told the story about this guy who went into a zoo in Mexico City and climbed over the, the barrier, and he got eaten by lions. And it just, I was like, I must have been about eight or nine years old, and it just stuck with me. What? You mean there's somebody else called Jesus? I had no idea. I had no contact with Hispanic culture. I had no idea at all. I just thought there was only one person that was ever allowed to be called Jesus. Blew my little, my little ignorant English mind in my childhood. But it stuck with me because the reality is there's, there's lots of Jesuses out there. There's Jesuses that aren't God. There's Jesuses that want your money. There's Jesuses that will teach you all kinds of false things, and they don't save. So that's why we're going to take our time to go through the book of Jude, and we're going to learn the true Jesus. We're going to learn why false doctrine is so serious, so divisive, and so damaging. And many of us may have to come to the realization that we've embraced more of it than we thought. And so I'll keep calling you beloved as we do it, but we will do it. Because we want the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help us God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and I pray that as a church, as we move forward in the book of Jude, that you would prepare us, humble us and bless us as we move through. If there are people here who have embraced false doctrine, I pray that you would bring correction for those of us who would shy away from contending for the faith, I pray that you would embolden us. For those who are maybe unclear 
on how to contend for the faith that you would encourage and inform. That we, all of us, as we come through this book, would learn to contend for the faith that was delivered once for all of the saints. Amen.